The previous Mishnah gave three different explanations for why when the Torah says that two witnesses are necessary for any testimony to be accepted in a capital case in order to kill somebody, it's not enough the testimony of one witness, but we require the testimony of two witnesses at least. The Torah goes out of its way to say that two witnesses or three witnesses. Now, if two witnesses work, certainly three witnesses will be accepted. And the Mishnah gives three different explanations for different ways in which we compare a case where three witnesses testify to a case when two witnesses testify. Now, this Mishnah brings another law which we learn from this comparison. Some explain that it's a continuation of just Rabbi Akiva's opinion. Some explain that it's an opinion in and of itself. It's another additional halacha which we learn from the Pasuk. Be as it may, that law is that just like if two witnesses testify together and one of them is found to be related to somebody involved or he's found to be an invalid witness for a different reason. So now the entire testimony will be invalid because for, ta- for capital cases, two witnesses are required. So if one of them is found to be invalid, then the one remaining witness is not able to bring about any death penalty to the person they're testifying against. So to if three people come and give testimony together, and one of them is found to be a relative or an invalid witness for a different reason, the testimony of everybody in that group will be invalid. And how do I know that even applies if the group is made up of a hundred witnesses and just one of them is found to be invalid? How do I know that all of the other witnesses are also invalid now, even though there are enough of them technically? That's what the Posuk teaches us by saying Adam, by saying the word witnesses a second time in the Posuk. That teaches us that it applies even to more than three witnesses. On Rabbi Yaisi, Rabbi Yaisi says that this law which we just stated, when these words said, this unique law only applies to capital cases, a case where there's a death penalty at stake. So we saw in Mzach Sanhedrin there are many, many leniencies and unique laws to capital cases which exist in order to really avoid reaching a verdict where somebody needs to be killed. So this is also one of those laws, even though logically speaking, there are now a hundred other witnesses, and it happens to be one of them was found to be invalid. You should still listen to the rest of them. No, this is one of the unique laws which the Torah said in order to avoid giving somebody the death penalty. But with monetary matters, the testimony should be fulfilled and established and continued with the remaining witnesses. However, Rebbe Omer Rebbe says, Rebbe refers to Rebbe Huda Hanossi, that no, this law applies both to monetary laws and to capital cases. However, that having been said, according to Rebbe, it only applies in a situation where this third witness or this additional witness who is the one who was found to be invalid, if he gave warning to the person involved, let's say the testimony was regarding Ruvain who killed Shimon, in order for Ruvain to be killed for that, to receive the death penalty, the witnesses must have given him hasra, a warning before he did that avera, that if he does it, he'll be killed by Bastin. So only if this witness, who was found to be an invalid witness, was one of the people to give him warning. He didn't just witness it, but he also gave him warning. That shows us that from that moment, he intended to testify against that person. So that intention which he had joins him together 
makes him part of the group of the other witnesses, such that we look at all of them as one unit, and if even just he is found to be invalid, the entire um, group of witnesses would be invalidated. But in a situation where the witness who was found to be invalid was not one of those who gave Hasra'ah, he didn't give warning, so we don't see that he intended already from then to give testimony. So there's nothing which connects him intrinsically to make him one unit with the other witnesses. And if, even if he is found to be invalid, the remaining witnesses can still testify and a verdict can be given based on their testimony. And Rebbe adds a logic. What should two brothers do? Who saw somebody kill another person. If we don't say like what I'm saying, says Rebbe, then any case where there are two relatives involved, you have two brothers who happen to witness the event as well as loads of other people. Oh, since two of them are related to each other, so they can't both be part of the group of witnesses. So you're going to say that nobody can give testimony in that case? Of course not. So what is the explanation? It must be that as long as the one of the brothers, let's say, doesn't have intention to testify, so then there's nothing which makes all of those witnesses one unit. Mr. Test, this Mr. comes to define what exactly is considered to be one group of witnesses and what would be considered to be two separate groups of witnesses. If there were two people who saw the murderer commit the crime from one window, and two other people saw the event, saw the murderer kill the person from a different window. The Echel Masabego and another person, an individual, gives the Hasra, the warning to the murderer, that if you do that crime, if you kill him, then you will be killed by Bastin. So we have five people involved over here, other than the murderer, and the person who gave the warning didn't necessarily see the crime as well. It could be that he just gave the warning. So he's not the one testifying, and according to the first opinion of the Mishnah, the one who gives the hasra or the warning does not need to be a witness. So we're only really discussing these two pairs of witnesses who are at each window. In a situation where a part of each pair of witnesses can see each other, and it's enough for one of each pair to see one of the other members, or even if one of each pair of witnesses sees the person in the middle, that is also enough to connect them, then both pairs of witness would form one unit for testifying. But if not, if they don't see each other at all, then it's considered to be two separate groups for testifying. Therefore, if only one of those groups, one of those pairs is found to be so we still have another pair of witnesses who is who have te- valid testimony testifying against the murderer. So who, he, the murderer, can still be killed. And Vohain, the Adam Zomimim, who are found to be false, it's not necessarily true that what they said is not true, just that they couldn't have witnessed the crime. They were found to be Adam Zomimim, at least according to the testimony of the second group of those who turned them into Adam Zomimim. So in this case, we would have the murderer being killed, and the Adam Zomimim being killed, and Herogen, they'd be killed, and the second group, whose testimony is still valid, they would certainly be exempt, because they were not found to be Adam Zomimim. Now, Rabbi Yossi argues on a side point, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Yossi says, nobody can ever be killed by Bastin, unless the two witnesses who are testifying against him are the same ones to give him the Hasra'ah. The warning. So in this case, where an individual gave him the hasra, and it wasn't the witness, him, the, the, the witnesses themselves, the hasra is invalid, and therefore the death penalty can't be given at all. And it follows, therefore, that the Adam Zomim would also not be punished themselves because the testimony they gave was not sufficient to reach a verdict. 
to make him guilty. Shneimer, as the Pesach says, Al Edim, by the mouth of two witnesses. And Ibrahim understands that that Pesach is referring to the Hasra'ah as well, and not only to the testimony which they give in Beistin. That having been said, the Mishnah does give Dover Acher another explanation for that Pesach, that it's referring to when the witnesses are giving testimony in Beistin, and Al Pishanaim Edim, by the mouth of two witnesses, comes to teach, that the Sanhedrin should not hear the testimony from the mouth of an interpreter of the witnesses, but rather from the witnesses themselves. The procedure of accepting witnesses in Beistin always needs to be hearing the testimony of the witnesses themselves and establishing the facts based on that as opposed to a middle party. Mishnah Yud, we'll see in a moment that the first part of this Mishnah is talking specifically about a murderer as opposed to any other crime which warrants a death penalty. But for now, the Mishnah says, Mishnah Yudin is somebody whose verdict had been passed. He was a murderer who had been taken to Beistin and Beistin had sentenced him to a death penalty. Uvorach, and he ran away before they managed to kill him. And later on, after a while, Uvorach knows the Beistin, he comes back in front of that Beistin, or they find him. The Mishnah says they do not need to rejudge the case. In they don't dismantle and uproot his judgment and his verdict. Rather, based on the sentence which they had already passed, they can give him the death penalty and they are obligated to give him the death penalty. Now the Gemara explains that this is true even if it's a different base then. If another base then know what his sentence was and they know that this person needs to be killed, even another base then who find him should kill him. The Gemara explains that our Mishnah is talking about a very specific case where he was given the verdict in a base then outside of Eretz Israel. And meanwhile, later on, he appears in front of that Beistin in Eretz Israel. In that case, only because it's the same Beistin are they able to kill him without rejudging the case. But if it was a different Beistin and he's now situated in Eretz Israel, they would need to judge the case again because we have a concern that perhaps because of the merit and holiness of Eretz Israel, if Beistin were to judge him again, they would be able to find a way of exempting him and not having to give him the death penalty. And as we saw extensively in Sanhedrin, we always try to avoid giving the death penalty. That having been said, if it's the same base then, and they moved also to Israel, so since they themselves gave the verdict, they are able to kill him, even without giving a new judgment. And now the Mishnah continues in a regular case, where it's not somebody who moved from Chutzalaretz to Eretz Israel. Any place, any basin where two witnesses come to that basin and say, We testify about a particular person, that his verdict was passed to be killed in a specific basin, and he's run away. And so-and-so and so-and-so are the witnesses who had testified against him and were the reason for his verdict being passed. If they tell this to a Beistin, and it's not a case where they moved to Eretz Israel, then Haizei Horig, the person would be killed by this new Beistin, and it does not have to be the same Beistin which gave the verdict, the ones who would kill him. Continues the Mishnah, Sanhedrin noheges ba'aretz v'chotzel ha'aretz. A Sanhedrin katana of 23 judges applies both in Eretz Israel and outside of Eretz Israel. Now, that is only on condition that they were appointed and the judges there received smicha. They received a title and the status of somebody who is able to be part of a basin, part of a Sanhedrin. They need to receive that from the Sanhedrin Agdola of 71 judges. And that needs to happen inside of Eretz Israel. But once they have received that appointment, then they are able to be a Sanhedrin Katana even outside of Eretz Israel. It follows also that only as long as there exists a Sanhedrin Gedolah of 71 judges, 
is there going to be a Sanhedrin Katana of 23 judges to judge capital cases? Now, the last part of this perech emphasizes how little and how unoften the base then the Sanhedrin would actually kill somebody. Sanhedrin is a Sanhedrin who managed to kill somebody once every seven years, once in a Shrita cycle. Nikres Chavlonis is called a violent base then a basin which is not patient in judgment and doesn't sit through the judgment for long enough to try and find a way of exempting that person from being killed. Rebbe Lozman Azariah says, not just once in seven years, it's even once in 70 years. And Sanhedrin, if we would have been on a Sanhedrin, if we would have been alive at the time where the Sanhedrin applied and had the ability to kill people, nobody would ever have been killed because we would have asked so many questions, etc. until we get to a point where one of the witnesses says something slightly different to the other witness and that would make the entire testimony invalid. And we would have always found a way of not actually giving the death penalty to the person involved. Rabbi Gamliel says this is not a good approach because they are increasing the amount of murderers in Kral Israel. Because firstly, there are certain people who are guilty who need to be killed. And secondly, other people won't be put off from murdering because they'll see that we won't be punished anyway. And so that is not a correct approach. I just realized now I forgot to mention in the first part of the Mishnah, the reason why I said it's talking specifically about a murderer and not just anybody who received a death penalty is because it's learned from Pesukim that for all of the other death penalties, the witnesses who testified against him need to be present when he is killed. As you saw in Sanhedrin, they even need to carry out the death penalty. So it can't just be that a different basin in a different location would kill them because we need the original witnesses to be there. Only a murderer, where we don't learn from Pesukim that the, the witnesses need to be there, only with regards to a murderer can he be killed in a totally different base then, without the witnesses being there. Peribes Mishnah Aleph. We now move on to the second subject of the Masechta, which is the focus of the second Perek, and that is the punishment of Golos, of exile when somebody kills by mistake. And Golos is considered to be an, an, an atonement. And because of that, if somebody kills un- unintentionally, but it's what is known as Shoige Korov Lamezid. It wasn't on purpose, but it was due to some negligence. It was due to not being careful enough. So it's close to being on purpose. In that case, he wouldn't go to Golos, because it's too severe for him to receive that atonement. At the same time, if it is something known as Shoige Korov Oines, it's unintentional, but it's close to being a total accident out of his control, then he also wouldn't go to Golos, because he doesn't need to go to exile, since he's not considered to be responsible. Only if it's considered to be in the middle, where it's really considered by mistake, but not a total accident, only then would he go to Golos. Says the Mishnah Elohim Agoylin, the following people would go to Golos. Somebody who murders another person by mistake. And the Mishnah gives three examples. If somebody was rolling a roller on top of a roof in order to spread tar on the top of the roof to smoothen it, and as he was rolling this heavy item, it slipped out of his hands, and it fell onto somebody, it fell off the roof, fell onto somebody, and killed him. Or, if he was lowering down a barrel from the roof with a rope, and he by mistake let go of the, ro- of the rope, and it fell onto somebody, and killed him. In this case, we assume he was being more careful, because he obviously doesn't want to smash his own barrel. 
All right, and Hayyori Basulam, if he was going down of a ladder, he was coming down a ladder from the top of the roof. So here he was certainly being very careful not to slip off. <laughs> but he fell off a ladder, and off of all of the Haragai, he fell on somebody and killed him. Says the mission in all of these cases, Harizagoyle, he would go to Golos. He's liable to go to exile because they all come under the category of a regular, unintentional murder. But if he was pulling the heavy roller towards himself and he let go of it and somehow it rolled in the opposite direction away from him and fell off the roof and off Oliver Haragato and fell onto somebody and killed him. If he was bringing up a barrel with a rope towards himself on the roof, and the rope snapped and the barrel fell onto somebody and killed him. If he was going up on a ladder, going upwards, and he fell off and killed somebody, he would not go to exile, because this is considered to be an unintentional act, which is considered to be close to out of his control. Zaklo, this is the rule. Any of these accidents which happen when he's going in a downwards direction, in the same direction as the item actually went in order to kill the person, he would go to exile. That's considered to be a regular unintentional act. But if it wasn't going on the downwards motion, he was really pulling it in the opposite direction. But it ended up killing him nevertheless. He would not go to exile. Now, one of the examples which the Torah gives for somebody who needs to go to Golos is when he's using an axe to chop a tree, the noshal habarzal in ha'etz, and the iron will fall from the wood. Or at least that's one way of translating it. Another way of translating it is that the noshal means that it, the iron causes something to fall from the wood. And we have an argument what exactly the case under discussion is. Nishmat habarzal nekatoi, if the iron falls out of the wooden handle, the horag, and ends up killing somebody whilst he's using the axe, Rebbe Omer Einagoyle. Rebbe says he does not go to Golos. That's considered to be an accident. It's not what the Torah talked about. However, the Chachom said that he does go to exile because that is the case which the Torah talked about. On the other hand, according to Rebbe, the case which the Torah talked about is Min where the iron axe, the iron part of the axe, when he put it into the tree, caused wood from the tree to go flying at somebody and killing him. If he is killed by a piece of wood which flies out of the tree, Rebbe says that he goes to exile because that is the case which the Torah talked about. But the Chachom say that he does not go to exile because that case is considered to be close to an accident. Excuse me, I made a mistake. In the previous case, the reason why, according to Rebbe, he would not go to Golos is because it's considered to be almost intentional. He should have been more careful and checked that the iron was fixed securely to the wood. In this case, it's the opposite. In this case, according to the Chachomim, the reason why he doesn't go to Golos is because it's considered to be close to an oines, something out of his control, and that is why he would not go to Golos according to the Chachomim.